All right, here we go. This is my Bible. I believe it's God's word. I believe every word is true. And it's all that I need. So Luke chapter 7 tonight. I hope that you're learning how to study that when you read that first line when in Luke chapter 7 and you hear when Jesus had finished saying all this. I hope that you will learn then to say, you know what, I'm going to go back and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to kind of go through what did he say. There was so much. Remember last week, it was like a Bible study. There he was doing miracles. And then all of a sudden, it's just like he, he saw his disciples, whether they were his 12 or whether they were more followers. He just looked at those disciples. And it's like he turned right to them and said, sit down. We've got, we've got a Bible study to do. And it just, it just went. It just flowed. I mean, he started with what needs to be started with. This is the perfect way you start a Bible study. And he said, blessed are you if you know you are poor. Blessed are you if you know you're poor. And that has nothing to do with money in this state. This is spiritually poor. Blessed are you when you know that you need help. You can't save yourself. I mean, isn't that the way it all starts? And so blessed are you if you recognize that and you come to the cross and you accept this salvation message that's for you. You hear him welcome you into his family. You then watch him turn you around to go back into life with his very spirit inside of you. Blessed are you if you know you're poor and you come to the one and only place that can change that. And it and then he goes on to say, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. There is the kingdom of God. You will then, and only then, will you start to experience the kingdom of God right then. The kingdom of God is something that, as his children, we are in right now. In a relationship with, with Jesus that will eventually go to a place where we will be with him forever. He said, blessed are you. When you know that. And then once you understand your salvation and you are on the way, you, you now want to keep growing. It's blessed are you if you keep hungering. You keep hungering for, for more. You will be satisfied. There's a one thing in this world that we could possibly be satisfied with. I mean, our world, it just shows you have a certain amount, you always want more. This world cannot satisfy. And he says, if you hunger for me, if you hunger for my word, you hunger for making me priority in your life, you hunger at putting me first and know that it is not about you anymore. It's about me. If you hunger for that truth, you'll be satisfied. And then blessed are you if you, if you weep. And that sounds like a downer, but he says, blessed are you if you keep understanding and going back to the only reason that you can have what the kingdom of God satisfied is because of the sacrifice, the great sacrifice that was paid for you, for me, for all of our sins, past, present, and future. The sacrifice. He says, never stop weeping over that. But he says, when, when you realize, because that's what's going to keep you on track, what's going to keep you and I on the right path, 
And that is honestly remembering what he did for you and me. That is how we stay on track. It keeps us humble before him. It keeps us clinging to him. And he says, and then when you, when you weep at the sacrifice that was made for you, he said, you will laugh. And it's not a funny laugh. It's a laugh of joy. It's a, it's a laugh of just an overflowing joy. I just don't know how else to say it. And, and that is a pretty powerful way to live. And then he goes right in and says, but let me just warn you right now, this kind of life is not going to be an easy one. I mean, people are going to misunderstand. They're going to call your names. It's just not going to be easy. So I'm just forewarning you so it doesn't throw you off. But then he just keeps going. He keeps going. The study is not done. He said, okay, now that you've got that, you've got those three points. Blessed are you if you're poor, you're hungry, and you weep then you know our relationship is where it's supposed to be. Okay, now you're going to go out there and you're going to live this. And I'm going to tell you right, right away, he says, I want you to love your enemies. <laughs> what, a way, what a way to come at you. Love your enemies. And then he talks about the fact that how do you do that? How can you possibly love the people that, that hurt you, that are unlovable? How do you love your enemies? And he, he says, do unto others what you would have them do to you. But then he finishes that little segment. He said, usually, you know, our human nature wants us to revenge or seek justification. But he said, I'm saying to you, be merciful, as my Father has been merciful to you. Mercy instead of justice. Mercy because it was not something that we deserved at all. But he says, now with that kind of mercy working through you, you then can extend it to others. And I think Jesus would just love to say to us, and you're going to get a whole lot farther. And your testimony is going to remain a whole lot brighter. And people are going to want to come along a whole lot more if you just learn to love your enemies. And then he continues and he says, don't pass judgment. Don't pass judgment. You don't know all what's going on. And he's just very much concerned that we don't, feel superior. Don't pass judgment. Maybe they're a little different than you. Maybe they don't do things the way you do. Don't pass judgment. He's so, so emphatic about that. Why don't you try, don't condemn either. Why don't you try forgiving and even giving? That'll get you farther. Now, do we never because there's such a difference between criticizing and passing judgment versus correcting. I always need to look at those two C words. Okay, how do I know if I'm criticizing or if I'm correcting? Because Galatians 6 says that we do have a responsibility to our fellow brothers and sisters in Christ that if they don't see themselves in their sin, then we have to. I mean, it's not ever fun, but it is what we have to do. But the difference between criticizing and correcting is when you're passing judgment and you're criticizing, it's because 
you have your best interest in mind. It's like you want to excel. And so putting someone else down just helps you look a little better. Just know when we criticize, it's because we have our best interests in mind. When you correct somebody, it's because you have their best interest in mind. And only you and the Lord can decide that, whether you are criticizing or whether you're correcting. And he also talks about, you know, it's such good advice. You know, you can't bring somebody any further than you are. So, you know, check to see because people are looking at you. In fact, some people might be even following you because they trust you. They look up to you. You wear that name Christian. Where are you leading people? Blind leading the blind? You're both going to land in the pit. Just think about that. People are looking, they're watching, they're following you. And where are you leading them? Where are you leading them? And we're so quick to see someone else's sin. We're so quick to do that. And he said, you know, yeah, you want to pick at that little speck in someone else's eye. And there, you know, in your self-righteousness, you get this big old plank in yours. He said, just make sure, again, that it's not criticism but that it's correcting. And then he says, take a look. I'll give you a little analogy. He says, um, your, your, your life is like a tree. And a good tree will produce good fruit. But if your tree is bad, there's no way it can produce good fruit. A bad tree is going to produce bad fruit. So his advice is, check. Check to see what is in your heart. Jesus, and the way Luke has been writing this, it's a big, big part of the gospel of Luke, of how much Jesus looks at the heart. We're going to see it so clear again tonight. And what are you? Are you real or are you fake? Are you pretending and, and camouflaging to other people? Or... Do you really care about, I want to be a good tree. I want to produce good fruit. I want to know that my heart is right, so out of my mouth will come the right words. That should be a concern. Because I'll tell you, the real you will come out. The fruit that's in your heart, whether it's the fruit of self or the fruit of the spirit, will come out because that's that your actions. And your words, I mean, you can, you can be nice for a little bit, but the real you will come out. And he was so, he wanted to make sure we see that. And then he closed this study by saying, how can you call me a Lord? I know it just sounds so spiritual. You call me Lord, but you don't even, you don't even obey what I say. And how can you even know what to obey if you're not even opening the instruction book? How are you going to know how to handle life? How are you going to know how to be a good tree unless you have an instruction book that will help you finish well? So you, you call me Lord? So he really just kind of lowered the boom. And then he gave that story. You can... 
you can have two houses look identical. But if it if it doesn't mean if it's not a priority for you to to build that house, your life on a the rock, the rock of Jesus, and that takes work, it takes effort, it takes discipline, it takes desire. It's not an easy road, but you want it bad enough. You build your house on the rock, or you want to build your house on who you are, what you've achieved, the things of this world, the little phrase, I got this. You, you want to build your house on all that? And maybe for a time, it's going to look, oh, they're going to look identical until the first storm comes. And there's such a difference when someone builds their house, their life, on the rock of Jesus. It doesn't mean that they don't hurt or cry or, or feel or suffer. It just means they know. They know that God is there. And they're going to trust him. Versus the person who has built their house on all the things of this world. I'll tell you, one storm and they're they're destroyed. They're down. They're defeated. They live in despair. And this is how we ended last week. I mean, that's the way he ended the Bible study, so I thought, so am I. But it was, a, it was something like, okay, think about it. That whole Bible study, best Bible study you are ever going to see and be a part of is that Bible study of Luke 6. He laid it all out there for you and I. And then he ended it by pretty much saying, okay, now you have a choice. And now today, he's going to pretty much kind of expound on that even more. So, yep, when Jesus finished saying the Bible study, to all the people that were hearing, he entered Capernaum. That was his residence. It's like he went home. And there a centurion servant, whom his master valued highly, was sick and about to die. You know, the first question that I asked you this week was, just, just kind of take a look at what, what that centurion, who that centurion is. What do you think of him? What do you think of that centurion? And, and I got to say, I didn't have any more white space. There was nothing about this centurion that I did not like. In fact, I just loved him. I just adored him. I can't wait to meet him someday. Because you just can't help but see he's so contrary to what is so normal for a centurion and a Roman. And instead, he's got a heart. He's got a heart that Jesus just loved. And you can see why. Do you know that in the culture of, of that day, and especially for a centurion, or, any, or anybody for that matter, if you had a servant or if you had a slave, and they, they got so sick, and I think that's why Luke makes sure that we see that he's not just a little sniffle. He's sick to the point that he's going to die. That if you had a servant or slave that was about to die, you might as well just kill him. Isn't that? It almost, you, you just, you can't believe that. But, but to them, they're worthless anyway. 
They're worthless. They can't do what you need them to do. They're probably just going to cost you because, you know, medicine and time and all that. So just be done with them. So when you know that that's what he could have done, and you see just absolutely the opposite, because he cares so much that he is willing to go to the Jewish elders because he knows the reputation of Jew and Gentile. But somehow he has developed a relationship with a group of Jews to the point that these Jews just think the world of him. And so he specifically goes to these elders So the centurion heard of Jesus and sent some elders of the Jews to him. He didn't even dare go himself. Even though later he says, you know, I'm over 100 people, 100 men. I mean, he knows his position and his place. And he does carry power and clout. And yet here, when it comes to Jesus, you see that beautiful word that every one of us needs to experience, and that's that word of humility. I don't care if you're president, CEO of a company, or whether you're homeless. We all have to come the same way in need of of a Savior. And here is the centurion who says to these elders, would you go to him? Would you tell them? Would you tell them the situation? And, and look, look what these elders say in verse 4. When they came to Jesus, they pleaded earnestly with him. They pleaded earnestly with Jesus. That just shows the, the precious relationship between these two people. I mean, between these two groups. you got the centurion who says to these this group of elders, would you please go to Jesus and and please ask him if he would heal my servant. And then the elders go to Jesus. They say to Jesus, we earnestly plead with you to do this because he is one good man. He deserves to have you do this because he loves our nation and has built our synagogue. See, I've read this, haven't you? And I don't think I ever caught the beautiful relationship here between Jew and Gentile. And so Jesus went with them. He was not far from the house. And when the centurion sent friends to say to him, so here comes group number two. He doesn't doesn't want to go again. So he sends another group. But this time I think... He's instructed them to say exactly how and what he once said. In fact, he might have even written it down and said, I just want you to read this because this is me talking. I want, I want, I want Jesus to hear this just like it was words out of my mouth because it's obviously per, first person. And look how he starts it. Lord, Lord. Capital L, he knows. He knows. Lord, don't trouble yourself, for I do not deserve to have you come under my roof. That is why I did not even consider myself worthy to come to you. Look what his humility. 
the way it's coming out of, of his mouth, the way Jesus can see it in his heart. He knows. I mean, he said, but say the word and my servant will be healed. For I myself, I'm a man under authority with soldiers under me. I tell this one, go, and he goes, and that one, come, and he comes. And I say to my servant, do this, and he does it. Now, maybe, I don't know, but could it be that, that this centurion knows that if Jesus would come to his home... The thought of having a Jew come into the home of a Gentile would be so horrible because that would put them unclean. Now, of course, I don't think Jesus cares at all, but maybe this centurion is thinking, you know, I don't even want to put Jesus in that predicament. You know, maybe the centurion knows that Jesus has got problems with the religious leaders, even though he's got a good rapport with some of them. Maybe he's heard that some of them don't even believe he is who he is. And they have such trouble about taking a few kernels of corn or healing a shriveled hand on the Sabbath. Can you imagine what they would do if Jesus went into the home of a Gentile. Maybe because it wasn't time for Jesus to go to the cross yet. Or maybe it just simply was, he just didn't feel worthy. And that just shows, and look at when Jesus heard this. He was amazed at him and turning to the crowd following him, he addressed the whole crowd. He was so taken by this that he told everybody who was around. He said, I tell you, I have not found such great faith even in Israel. That was a low blow. That was a low blow to an Israelite. But Jesus didn't care. He's saying, you know what? This man did everything that was required. This is the kind of attitude. This is the kind of heart. This is the kind of humility that I require. And he did it all right. He believed. He trusted. And he said, you know, you Israelites, you, you are like living in a false security. It's like what John the Baptist said when he called them, you brood of vipers. When, when he said, don't even think about giving me the excuse, well, I'm a child of Abraham. When, he, when, he, when John the Baptist said that, because they are so living in the thought that, well, we're God's chosen, you know, we... We don't have to humble ourselves. We don't have to... We're, well, we see later, they don't even think they're sinners. A lot of them. So they're living in this false security that doesn't require faith. And that's why Jesus said that. I love this guy. He has more faith than you Israelites. But I thought, is that relevant today? Think of how many people are sitting in churches who've maybe been in church all their life. And we've said this many times, come from wonderful families and and they, too, are living in a deluded kind of attitude. 
They think, oh, I'm fine. And the good things that they do and who they are. And, and they don't need faith because I'm okay. And they've never seen, experienced that humility. So I think as relevant as it was in that passage, I, I, I think we see it today the same way. Soon after, Jesus went to a town called Nain. And his disciples and a large crowd went along with him. And as he approached the town gate, a dead person was being carried out, the only son of his mother, and she was a widow. A lot of details there. Why would Luke make sure that we know everything about this whole scenario? That, okay, we have a funeral procession, and Jesus stops, and he watches he approaches and he notices that it is the only son of his mother and she was a widow. Those are details here. I mean, it has got to be, I never experienced it, I pray I never do, but for some of you, you know what it's like to lose a child and the suffering and the devastation and the lost. I can't even, I don't think there's enough words to describe that kind of pain, that kind of hurt. So you, you know that this woman has got a lot. She has just lost her child. But something else we have to see is that in that day, a widow, she's a widow, and widows were not cared for except by her children. And we, we, are, we are made sure that we understand that she has now lost her only child. And so not only has she experienced the suffering and the torment of the loss of her, her one and only son, she now has to face the future of, I don't know how I'm going to do this. I don't know how, how I can do it. I don't have any children to take care of me. When the Lord saw her, her heart went out to her, and he said, don't cry, don't cry. Did you stop and just kind of picture and feel that Jesus cared? He cared about this widow, her suffering, her predicament, and said, don't cry. You know, I think sometimes this caring for people, I mean, I know that there's a lot of wonderful people that care, but but I think we're starting to see it more and more that that people are either so busy or preoccupied or or maybe they don't even care, I don't know, but maybe they're just got so much on their mind and I mean, we had this Sunday at church I think we parked too close to the curb. That's what I think we have. Well, we did, but 
So Tom and I were struggling to get up the curb. I mean, it would have looked like we were 96. I really think the way it was. We were trying to get up the curb where we, we had parked. We probably should never park there. So we got out of the car. We were trying to get up this curb. I managed to get it first. I'm helping him. This is so silly. It's, it's so silly. But then right when we were starting to get our bearings... Like we're not going to fall. This young couple just barrels on by, and especially the young woman. And it's like she, she about pushes right over. And Tom and I kind of looked at each other and I thought, did she see us? I mean, it was so obvious that we were having trouble. I mean, I didn't expect her to help us, but I didn't expect her to plow us over either. And I just kind of thought, you know, maybe, like I said, she got a lot on her mind and all this kind of thing. But I don't want, want to lose that. I don't want to lose caring for people. That if you see a need, that, that you stop. Even though it might take time. It might cost a little for whatever reason. But I don't want to lose that beautiful characteristic of Jesus about caring. Because Jesus cared when he said, don't cry. He cared. What old hymn came to your mind? Oh, boy, did this hymn ever come to my mind. Because this hymn writer, when he wrote it, he was just like you and me, probably going through a very, very difficult time that you can't even help that this thought came to your mind or this question came to your mind. Does Jesus care? Does he even care that my heart is pained? And then when you get to that last verse, I mean, this is the real. You can tell this man is, doesn't he care when I've said goodbye to the dearest on earth to me? When my sad heart aches till it nearly breaks, is this even clear to him? Does he even see? I mean, this is what our human nature does. But there again, look at this hymn writer. He knew. He knew who his Lord was. He knew who Jesus was. And it's just like, because he's filled with the Spirit, he was willing to let the Spirit remind him of everything he has learned because all of a sudden the chorus comes blazing out. Oh, yes, he cares. It's like, I'm sorry I even questioned it. I'm embarrassed that I even asked that question. Oh, yes, he cares. His heart is touched with my grief. And when my days are weary and those long nights dreary, I can know, I can know that Jesus cares. Then, then Jesus went up and touched the coffin. This is how much he cared. He went up and he touched the coffin, and those carrying it stood still. And he said, young man, I say to you, get up. Did you notice that he addressed 
He didn't address the crowd. He didn't address the widow. He addressed the young man. Talked to him. And, you know, I went back and I looked at the story of Jairus' daughter. Jesus did the same thing. And we know that Jesus did that with Lazarus. He got to the, he got to the tomb and he yelled in a loud voice, Lazarus, come forth. The dead man sat up and began to talk, and Jesus gave him back to his mother. What a sight that had to been. I'd love to watch that widow's face. I got my boy back. Boy, that must have been something. But I just have to say something about, you know, we have a tendency to say that he was resurrected from the dead. And I know this is just semantics. It's probably just words. But I have a hard time with, like, the widow's son of Elijah. And then, and then in the New Testament where Jesus raises from the dead, I can say raised from the dead. I can even say restored back to life. But I have a hard time saying resurrected because Jesus is the first one that was resurrected to come out of the tomb to never die again. And he paved the way for you and I to be able to follow suit. That we die once and then when we're resurrected, we will never die again. Now, even though this was such a beautiful thing, and with Lazarus and with Jairus' daughter. And, but in all reality, they have to die again. But still, it still was a beautiful thing. The Lord knew just exactly who to do that to and how. And like I said, it's just maybe words and semantics. But I just love thinking Jesus being the first one to step out of that tomb and that, that is our entrance to the same. They were all filled with awe and praised God. A great prophet has appeared among us. My first thought was, well, that's progress. At least they're calling him a prophet now. But it just shows by their next comment, it does show that they're still not desiring to really know who he is because they still want someone to make things better so they don't have to be under the Roman rule. They don't have to live under this kind of persecution. So when they said a great prophet has appeared among us, God has come to help his people. See, the thing is, they don't realize that Jesus is going to do so much more than what they think. See, the, the trouble that humans have is that we get so caught up into the now. We want things fixed now. We want to feel better now. We want everything right now. But we've got to learn, we've got to get to know the Lord so much better so that we can start to say, okay, you're not doing it the way I want it now. But that must mean you've got a greater purpose coming up. 
You've got a greater reason. I mean, they want him to set up an earthly kingdom, obviously. But we know that he's, send, he's setting up a heavenly kingdom, a kingdom that will have no end. Didn't you love it when we did Daniel in, in, with Nebuchadnezzar's dream and, and how Daniel was talking about Babylon and then the Medes and the Persian Empire and then the Greek Empire and then the Roman Empire. And all while he was talking about these empires, he was saying, and they're all going to go down. But while all these earthly empires are going to go down, even as we speak, this world empire is going to go down. But while this is all happening, Daniel said he's setting up a kingdom that will have no end. And that's what we should be living in. That's what we should be always remembering when we watch the news, when we see how the world is falling apart. But as we speak, he's setting up a kingdom that we will be a part of that will have no end. This news about Jesus spread throughout Judea and the surrounding country. And you know, it's not coincidence that this next block of verses is in this particular setting. Because John the Baptist's disciples they were telling John, John's in prison. And they're telling him all about these things and calling two of them. John the Baptist sent them to the Lord to ask, are you the one who was to come or should we expect someone else? Did you for even a second think, John, how could you? Because you said it so clearly in John 1.29. Behold, the Lamb of God who's going to take away the sins of the world. There was no question when you read about John the Baptist that he doubted who he was forerunning. So what's happening, John? You know, could it, could it be that, you know, he's just in a state of discouragement and depression because he did not expect his life to go like this? He too expected a new kind of kingdom. He is human. John the Baptist was human. I don't think that John the Baptist ever doubted that Jesus was who he was. I think he just doubted the way Jesus was handling it all. I think, I mean, this had to go through his mind. I mean, after all, if you can do all this, get me out of here. Or if you are who you are, and I believe you are, then why would you not set up a kingdom so that we can defeat these Romans once and for all? I think he just had some doubts. And see, I, I can't help but see that we get blinded if we are not willing to trust the Lord and his perfect will. And we are so caught up with not getting what we think we should get. Because we put Jesus in a box and a lot of times we take him out. Oh, this is what I want you to do. 
This is what I want you to solve for me. And when he doesn't do it, oh my goodness. Then, then could we get to that state where, I mean, I've, all of a sudden the questions, the doubts, the how comes, and it's not what I expected from the Christ. He's able to do anything. think that we have to see that in and of ourselves when the questions and the doubts start. Could it be I'm not trusting him enough to do what he knows is best? And all he wants from me is to say, if you're willing, I know you can, or not my will, but yours be done. Well, Jesus wasn't mad, so we definitely should not look at him in a negative way. I think we just see such human nature. And Jesus isn't a bit upset with him. At that very time, verse 21, Jesus cured many who had diseases, sicknesses, evil spirits, gave sight to many who were blind, so while these messengers are asking Jesus, this is what John wants to know. It's like I, I see Jesus just keep doing his work. And then when the time is perfect, like in verse 22, because I don't think he replied to the messengers right away. I think he wanted those messengers to watch him. And then when the time was right, he said to the messengers, go back. Go back and report to John what you have seen and heard, witnessed with your own eyes, heard with your own ears. You go back to him and you tell him, the blind receive sight, the lame walk, those who have leprosy are cured, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the good news is preached to the poor. To me, that's the best line of all. You go back and you tell John that this gospel message, the message of salvation is being preached to the poor. And again, it's not those who are homeless and without money. You tell John that I am getting this salvation, salvation message out to all those who have never heard. I'm going to keep saying it to those who think they don't want to hear. I'm going to keep making sure the good news is preached to the poor. Blessed is the man who does not fall away on account of me. I think, and remember how we said, blessed is even a difficult thing if it draws us closer to the Lord. That helps us to see that he has given us blessings of all kinds, but all these blessings are to do one thing, and that is to draw us closer to him. I think what he's saying to John the Baptist, I know you've had a, I, I've given you a tough job. We're going to hear how he just talks so admirably about John the Baptist and how well he did his job. But right now to his messengers, he says, you go tell him, blessed, 
is the man who does not fall away on economy. Blessed is the man who's not offended by me. John, I know that this is not what you expected, but this experience, if you are willing, will draw you closer to me, and you will know me even better. If you're willing to just trust me, trust that I know what I'm doing, far more than what you can see right now. After John's messengers left, so they're gone, and now Jesus begins to speak to the crowd about John. And he keeps asking one specific question. He knows he's talking to people who have probably gone into the desert during the John the Baptist day because they just wanted to hear him, see him, you know, wonder what kind of goofball we've got out there now. So he asked the question to them, what did you go out to the desert to see? A reed swayed by the wind? If not, then if that wasn't it, what did you go out there to see? A man dressed in fine clothes? <laughs> no, those who wear expensive clothes and indulge in luxury are in palaces. Okay, if that wasn't it, but what did you go out to see? Did you go out to see a prophet? Yes, I tell you, and oh, he is a prophet. He's more than a prophet. In fact, Malachi, the last book of the Old Testament, the prophet, wrote these words, I will send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way before you. Jesus saying, the prophets knew exactly who John the Baptist was and what he was going to do for me. How often, that he's pretty much saying, what did you go out there to see? Did you notice did you notice that he was so committed to his mission? I mean, he didn't, he didn't care what he ate. He didn't care what he drank. I mean, he, he ate locusts. Did you go out there to watch him eat a bug? Were you just so curious about that? Or did you hear that he wore strange kind of clothes, not normal? But if you were willing, you would see that he was not at all concerned about man's approval. You saw a man who was so totally sold out to his mission. I tell you, among those born, verse 28, I tell you, among those born of women, there is no one greater than John. What a compliment. Wouldn't you just love that if you're talking about you I mean, when you said, there is no one greater born of women. But then in the very same sentence, he says, yet, the one who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. I mean, you just said there was no one greater and then you come back and say, 
Yet the one who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. That took me a while. I just didn't understand that. It's like, are you talking out of both sides of your mouth? You're saying one, one part, he's the greatest, and then the other, but he's the least. You know, I think it's hard sometimes to understand the Old Testament prophets. And even though John the Baptist is in the New Testament, he still basically is an Old Testament prophet. And see, it's called the Old Covenant. It's called the Old Covenant. It started way back in Genesis 12, where God spoke to Abraham and said, I am going to begin a new covenant with you. He says, I am going to start you and your descendants. And it will become a nation. And the whole intent was so that I can bring the Savior through this nation. Bring the Savior through a Jewish woman. And he, he's saying this because... John the Baptist is going to die before the new covenant is instated. And the new covenant, according to Paul's letter to the people of Corinth, he calls it a new covenant. And it basically is, he's here. The gospel is here. Jesus is here. The one who was promised is here. The new covenant. John the Baptist was going to die before Jesus fulfilled his work on the cross. He was going to die before Jesus came out of the grave and opened up this whole new way. See, you and I, we live on this side of Calvary, this side of the empty tomb, this side of Pentecost. We're part of the new covenant. We're part of that kingdom of God. But he's saying, John... John is not part of that new covenant. And so I had to, my curiosity, I started to think, well, how could the people in the Old Testament, all the way to John the Baptist, how in the world could they be saved? If Jesus hadn't died and shed his blood, if he hadn't rose from the dead, if, if that's the criteria needed, how could all those, how could Abraham Isaac, Jacob, Moses, David, how could they all, even John the Baptist, I know we're going to see him in glory. Elisha, Elijah, I could go on and on. We know we're going to see them in glory. But if they live a part of the old covenant, and you know, it's really the simplest answer. I don't know why I made it so complicated. Because all those people in the Old Testament that were willing to trust and believe and accept and claim the promise of God. And the promise of God was, I'm going to send, I'm going to send someone who is going to take care of all of sin, all of your sin. I'm sending someone who will take care of that. So what, what, about, what about the Old Testament? Well, that's why they had to follow.
follow through with the symbolic, the symbolism of the new of the New Testament, the promise of Jesus. The Old Testament was they believed the promise, so there was that little lamb, there was the bloodshed, there was the sacrifice. They believed the promise. Anybody who is willing to believe the promise and trust the promise, they were saved. But we, being a part of the new covenant, how do we absolutely know that it's true? How do we know that this new covenant is true? We didn't actually see Jesus die on the cross. We didn't actually see him come out of the grave. How do I know this Bible's true? See, as the people in the Old Testament, they had, to, they had to trust and believe what they couldn't see. That's what faith is. They had to exercise faith that eventually this was going to happen. Jesus was going to come. The same way with us. We still need to live by faith. We've got to exercise faith. We've got to say, I believe, I trust. I didn't actually see it. But that's what faith is. So how, how do I know? How do you know that this is true? Oh, you're going to come up with, well, it's just amazing how prophecy was filled so intricately. You can't help but see that it's true. But I think it even gets more personal. How do I know that this is true? Because I look in the mirror. I know what I was. I know what I am today. And I know what I'm going to turn out to be like. And there's no one else that could do that. And I know me too well. And no one else could do this. And so, yes, I believe. There comes a time that you just believe. You humbly believe. And if I'm going to call him Lord, just like he said, well, then you better believe. You better obey. Okay, all the people, verse 29, all the people, even the tax collectors, when they heard Jesus' words, they acknowledged that God's way was right because they had been baptized by John. You gotta love that verse. You just do. You go back to Luke chapter 3. Remember after John called the Pharisees, you brood of vipers. And, and, then, and then he said, let me explain something to you. You better produce fruit with your repentance. So in other words, it better be real. Remember, that's what he said in Luke 3. He was no nonsense. He called it. In fact, he even gave you a word picture. An axe is it's right there at the base of the tree. And it's gonna it's gonna get chopped down. In fact, not only chopped down, it's gonna be thrown in the fire. I mean, that was quite that was quite major. And so the people started saying, well, what, what, what must we do? And in, in Luke 3, one of the groups of people that asked, what must we do, were the tax collectors. There was a group of tax collectors that said, teacher, what must we do? And John the Baptist says, stop it. Stop what you're doing. Stop being deceitful. Let, let salvation change you. So the old is gone and the new has come. 
these same tax collectors, I think, are the same ones here. Because it said all the people in the tax collectors, when they heard Jesus' words, acknowledged that God's way was right because they had been baptized by John. They were willing to believe John. And then it wasn't even hard to believe Jesus. <coughs> what a sight that must have been. But look at verse 30. But the Pharisees and experts in the law rejected God's purpose for them. No, let me read that again. But the Pharisees and experts in the law rejected God's purpose for themselves because they had not been baptized by John. See, they didn't listen to John. They didn't listen to Jesus. So Jesus kind of expounds on that. To what then can I compare the people of this generation? What are they like? They are like children sitting in the marketplace and calling out to each other. We played the flute for you and you did not dance. We sang a dirge and you did not cry. Jesus is saying, we tried. We brought it out there and you wouldn't listen. You wouldn't do it. So he expounds on it further. For John the Baptist, he came neither eating bread nor drinking wine. And then you had to come up with this excuse. Oh, he's such a strange, such a strange guy. He's got a demon. Not going to listen to him. Then the son of man came eating and drinking. And you say, oh. Not going to listen to him either. He's a glutton. He's a drunkard. He's a friend of tax collectors and sinners. See, you don't listen. You know why they didn't listen? They had no one to blame but themselves. Jesus is saying it was right there. In fact, let me tell you, I'm right here. John was there. I'm here. You don't listen. You chose, you can't blame anybody but yourself for this because you chose not to hear, not to see. But look at verse 35. But wisdom is proved right by her, by all her children. You know, in Proverbs, wisdom is kind of put in, a, in her or she. When you talk about wisdom, it's she, her. I had to think about that. So it said, but wisdom is proved right by all her children. I think what Jesus meant is, you're not listening now. But you're going you're, you're gonna to see that wisdom was right. That these words were right. That they were truthful. Oh, you can shut your ears. You can shut your eyes now. But one day, when wisdom is revealed, when you, you're, you can't help but see and hear. And we know what that verse is. And one day, every knee's going to bow and every tongue's going to confess. And that's where Jesus left it. See, I think this whole chapter, Luke is really making sure we see that Jesus gives us this choice. There is either the person who humbles himself and sees themselves as a sinner and they need a Savior and they're willing to 
do what it takes. Or you've got these smart religious people who are as fake as can be because they choose that. Because they think they're so adequate in and of themselves. They don't even realize what they're missing. I think the only way I can really describe this is there was one Tuesday night that I sang at the Ottawa County Jail. I used to sing there all the time. In fact, I sang at the Ottawa County Jail so many times that I just pulled into the booking stall and some of the trustees would watch, wash and wax my car. <laughs> so it was great. But you know, I sung it so, in so many prisons, so many jails, and the one thing I never had to work hard at was convince them that they're sinners. And I think it's because of where they were sitting. Oh, you always have a couple that think they were there falsely accused. And maybe that's true, but for the majority of them, you don't have to work hard at that. And so I didn't have to spend my time I could spend my time in these institutions, in these prisons, in these jails to say, let me tell you how much Jesus loves you. Let me tell you how he can take mistakes like we all make. And he can cover them with his blood and remembers them no more. And he can start your life all over. I can spend my time that I have in there telling him this. I've just had some great times in there. This particular Tuesday night, I remember, it was good night. This isn't coincidence either. The next morning, I had to go into a Christian high school to do their chapel. Now remember where I've been, and now look where I am. Now, there's got to be over a thousand kids sitting out there. And if you want to know what board looks like, it was there. I started, they are so bored. And you know why they're bored? Because they're so spiritually spoiled. They have this every day. And I looked at this, I looked at them and I thought to myself, you know, all I could see was the night before. And so I said to them, I, I just came right out and said, let me tell you where I was last night. Boy, do I have a story for you. I was in the Ottawa County Jail. Their heads all came up because I think they thought, boy, we're going to hear about some bad one now. Because you know what I could see on their face? Because I'm not one. We're sitting here. They're, they're sitting there with that illusion that all's fine. But they're bored with the story. I said to him, I said, okay. Um, and I told him about what I said to him and that. I said, isn't that wonderful? Isn't that wonderful? I'm going to ask you, where do you think I would rather be right now? I'm sure many of them thought, well, of course, here. Who would want to be in that prison or jail? I said, I'd rather be there. I would so much rather be there than I am right here. 
And I said, but you know what I'm going to do for your sake? I'm going to tell you the same thing I told them last night. I'm going to tell you how much Jesus loves you. I'm going to tell you how much he can take your sin and put it under the blood. How he can transform your life forever and give you a home that you can look forward to no matter what happens. I couldn't help. I haven't thought that story in ages until I was studying this. I thought, if that isn't just exactly what we're studying tonight. And I think that's why Luke closes this chapter with this particular story. Because then you can see, you can see exactly what Jesus is up against all the time. The people who humbly come and acknowledge themselves for who they really are. Or the smart people who think they're so religious and spiritual and have missed it all. Now one of the Pharisees invited Jesus to have dinner with him. So he went to the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. You know what? I don't think that Jesus was looking forward to that. I think the only reason he was looking forward to it because he knew what was coming. And it could be maybe he was looking forward to it for just a little bit because he thought, well, it's another opportunity. It's another opportunity to be able to tell them. He never wasted an opportunity. But I don't think that he was overly excited to just let them keep picking at him all the time. But he went because he knew. He knew the beautiful scene that was going to transpire. That should have, should have changed everybody in that whole room. When a woman who had lived a sinful life in that town learned that Jesus was eating at the Pharisee's house, she brought an alabaster jar of perfume, and as she stood behind him at his feet weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears. Then she wiped them with her hair, kissed them, and poured perfume on them. What a story. What a visual. I could do so many things to color this up. But the one thing I am going to say is, and I don't think I'm adding to scripture. I just, as I look at this woman, she had to, she knows she's a sinful woman. She knows what she's done. We don't know, but she does. And I think she woke up that morning and she said, I've had it. My life is a mess, and I have heard, maybe she even heard about the paralytic that came through the roof. Maybe she heard that story, and she heard that the first thing Jesus said to that paralytic was, your sins are forgiven. I think that rang a bell, that there's someone going around saying, your sins are forgiven. I can start you brand new. I can wipe this slate clean. I think she was so determined. I think she had so had it with her sin. 
Because when she found out that Jesus was at the home of the Pharisee, don't you think common sense would tell you there's no way this gal is getting in there? They're not going to let her in that house. Why in the world didn't she say, well, let's try again tomorrow. Let's see where he is tomorrow. She doesn't. She finds out he's at the home of the Pharisee, and she goes there. She gets her alabaster jar. She, I don't know how she did it. I'd love to know how she got in that door. All I can see is one determined woman that all she could see was Jesus. And whether she pushed that door down, I don't know. But there was no one that was going to stop her. And she walked in that door. But look where she went. She did not look from side to side. Because I think that would have deterred her. Because I'm sure she would have heard plenty. But she kept her eyes tunneled in on Jesus. Look, she is so humbled that she goes behind him. She stands behind him. I mean, that's major humility. She thinks of herself so little that she doesn't even dare walk in and go to him and face him. She goes behind him. Now, the Bible doesn't say this, but she had to have fallen on her knees. She had to. Because it says, she began to wet his feet with her tears. Then she wiped them with her hair. She kissed them and poured perfume on them. She is down on the ground. That had to have been such a gorgeous, and I mean gorgeous sight. This tear-stained face. And then as she opens up this perfume jar, the smell that went into that room. But look at verse 39. I mean, this had to be such an extraordinary experience for everybody watching. It had to be such a smell. When the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, he doesn't say it out loud, but we've learned. Jesus knows. But look what he's saying. If this man were a prophet, if. Such irony. Here you've got this sinful woman who knows exactly who he is and what he can do for her. This low life, this nobody, who knows? And then you've got this Pharisee who is so proud of what he knows, and he really knows nothing. Because look at he says, if he were a prophet, he doesn't even have a clue he would know what kind of woman is touching him. And he would know that she's a sinner. Jesus answered him, Simon, I have something to tell you. Tell me, teacher. Jesus said, two men owed money to a certain money lender. One owed 500 denarii, another 50. Neither of them had the money to pay him back. So he canceled the 
debts of both. Now, which of them will love more? Which of them are going to love him more? Simon replied, I suppose the one who had the bigger debt canceled. Jesus said, yeah, you're right. You judged correctly. But Jesus says, you're just looking at this so superficially. Look, it says, then he turned toward the woman. I think he was sick to death of looking at this pious, self-righteous person. He would rather look at the tear-stained face of that woman. And yet, he's still going to speak to the Pharisee. He turned toward the woman, but said to Simon, do you see this one? I came into your house. You did not give me any water for my feet. She wet my feet with her tears, wiped them with her hair. You did not give me a kiss. But this woman from the time I entered has not stopped kissing my feet. You did not put oil on my head, but she has poured perfume on my feet. Therefore, I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven. For she loved much. And then he sticks this in there. Just so hoping that Simon would connect. But he who has been forgiven little. If you think that you're fine. And that the cross, not that big a deal. Because after all, I'm pretty good. Look at all I know. Look how smart. Look how spiritual I am. If you do not know how much you need to be forgiven, you are not going to love me. You're you're not going to love. He who has been forgiven little is going to love little. Jesus continues to look at her. Your sins are forgiven. What a sight that must have been. But look at verse 49. The other guests began to say among themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? They're not willing. They're not willing to seek him out, to want no more. Because I'm sure if they had better questions other than who is he anyway, that he can even forgive sins, Luke would have wrote about it. Luke would add more to the story. But they were appalled by all this. So Jesus said to the woman, your faith, your faith has saved you. Now go, go live it up, go live in peace. You don't have to carry this shackle anymore. You don't have to carry this guilt anymore. All what you have done is gone. You go live like you've never lived before. If this song had been written, I would dare say that Jesus helped her up. The tears still going down her face. But I think she would have been skipping out of there saying, I'm free. 
I'm free from the fear of tomorrow because you know she lived in fear of the next day. If she would have said, I'm free from the guilt of my past, I've traded all my shackles for this glorious song, I'm free. Praise the Lord. And I think she would have gone right into that next song. Peace. I never knew what this felt like before. Wonderful peace that came straight from God. Sweep over my spirit, please. In that fathomless billow of love. Why why doesn't that lady have a name in here? Why don't we know her name? Why don't we know a specific sin? Why why does Luke not put her name in there? Because I'm sure whoever was telling this story, I bet they, they know her name. But yet he doesn't put his name in there, her name in there. Because if, if there was ever a story in all of Scripture that you and I should put our name, it's in Luke chapter 7. Because this woman, I mean, even for you men, you know the principle. The principle is still the same. Every one of us. You, you can decide whether you want to be like the Pharisee or whether you want to be humbled like this woman. But why would anybody want to miss all what he's got? Why would anybody not want to hear your sins are forgiven? Go live in peace. Go live it up. Because you have got a whole new life and a whole life to come. Heavenly Father, thank you for making this so clear. Just pray that this clicks, that this finally clicks in us. And that we can pencil our name in that. As we read that story, we can see our life unfold. Father, we thank you for loving us with a love that's just unexplainable. Thank you for freeing us that we can live and bask in this freedom. And thank you that we can know what real peace is. Because we are staying connected to the Prince of Peace. And we pray this all in his name. Amen.